This is Father Patrick Briscoe. This is Father Gregory Pine. This is Father Bonaventure Chapman. And welcome to God's Planning. Listeners, as is our custom during the special penitential seasons of Advent and Lent, we're happy to provide you with these Lexio episodes, these reflections on the Sunday Mass readings. If you enjoy what you're hearing, be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. We also appreciate those of you that support us on Patreon. Consider making a donation to help the podcast continue to improve. Well, as we open this episode at the outset of Lent, I was thinking about what Lenten books have made a difference in my life, something that I've read for Lent that was really important. And before I give mine away, I'm going to ask Father Gregory what his best Lenten read has been in recent memory. Yeah. So I always like to over-manifest when given the opportunity. And now I'm going to reveal the fact that spiritual reading isn't exactly my jam. So my favorite Lenten read... <laughs> is actually The Purgatorio by Dante Alighieri, which is a sneaky one because it's old and it's by an Italian. So you just assume that it's like a spiritual classic, but I don't think it qualifies more of an epic poem. Um, and the way that, yeah, Dante progresses through the circles of purgatory is obviously purgative, uh, but it's a great reflection for the purgative elements of Lent. So that for me is a go-to. Father Bonaventure, you also probably read Dante during Lent? I do not. Um, I ought to. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, Lenten reading is... Uh, do you have a bizarre uh, 17th century German idealist that maybe you <gasps> would propose for Lent? Yeah, Karl Reinhold. That guy is a boss. Letters on the Kantian Philosophy, where he, where he describes Immanuel Kant as the second Immanuel, the Jesus... Uh, it's really amazing. It's just, Whoa! Yeah, it's mind blowing. It's like literally, you couldn't. It's not even. It's like he's not, he says, "I'm not even making it up." It's it's real. This guy is <laughs> named Emmanuel for a reason. It's unbelievable. No, um, that's not as helpful. Um, I I think uh, the best recently. I do like some spiritual reading, but it's generally Faustina. Uh, so rats benedict 16th uh the late uh pope benedict 16th his second volume right the uh holy week reading i think that's it's not bad it's not as good as jesus of nazareth but it's a nice it's it is a nice walk through the kind of holy week uh that sort of thing i it's not as greatest but it's it'll do in a pinch <laughs> nice wow very inspiring okay father patrick next time think of a better question to start well we're, we're setting you up so you can say your lenten companion because we've offered nothing that no one anyone else wants to read <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, so I do have, I do have something actionable um, that I've offered, authored with our Sunday visitor called My Daily Visitor, which I would recommend. But one of the best ones that that I've read uh, that I really enjoyed as a novice was uh, Certiange, What Jesus Saw from the Cross, uh, which was very lovely. It gives you a whole sense of the landscape of Jerusalem and really sets you in the context of the Passion. So, so I I would really recommend that book. I think it's I think it's really a marvelous and. Uh, lesser known treasure. I think it's still published by Sophia Press. Which means that its title has probably changed three times since its last publication. <laughs> and, it's got bu- and it's got it. bullet points on the back, bullet points on the back cover for <laughs> spiritual growth. Hey, everybody likes a good list, right? <laughs> Some like it more than others. <laughs> you could cross this off, Father Gregory. Boom. Well, with that, let's, uh, let's say the, the collect for the Mass and begin our reflection on the reading. Let us pray. Grant, Almighty God, through the yearly observances of Holy Lent, 
that we may grow in understanding of the riches hidden in Christ and by worthy conduct pursue their effects. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. Father Gregory, can you take us to the first reading? A reading from the book of Genesis. The Lord God formed man out of the clay of the ground and blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and so man became a living being. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and placed there the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God made various trees grow that were delightful to look at and good for food, with the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the animals that the Lord God had made. The serpent asked the woman, Did God really tell you not to eat from any of the trees in the garden? The woman answered the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. It is only about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, You shall not eat it or even touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You certainly will not die. No, God knows well that the moment you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like gods who know what is good and what is evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eyes and desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In philosophy, there's a principle that's much discussed and beloved by Aristotelian Thomists. And uh, the principle is that in the order of action, the end comes first. And you say like, okay, what does that mean? It means that the, the, the goal has to lead whatever way you're heading. And the church actually gives us this principle in a very quiet, a very hidden, a very subtle way with this first reading. Why? Because we hear uh, this Genesis reading you know, and including the, the first part of, of Genesis, those beautiful opening lines about the creation of the world. We hear these Genesis readings at the beginning of the Easter Vigil. So already on this first Sunday of Lent, by connecting this, this, uh, this first reading from the first Sunday of Lent to the Easter Vigil, we can have the end, we can have the goal in mind, which is the defeat of our sin, the conquest of sin, the, the stuffing of the serpent, the slaying of the serpent, the defeat of sin by the Lord Jesus and his resurrection, um, which is, of course, made possible by the Virgin Mary, the new Eve. So when we, when we have that principle in mind, this becomes not just another recitation of these verses from Genesis, which seem to appear fairly frequently in the lectionary. We like just had them a week ago at Daily Mass. Uh, so it becomes not just another recitation of these beloved readings from Genesis, but it orients us towards our imminent Easter victory. What's wrong with being like gods? I mean, what's, what's the problem here? Are we not created in the image and likeness of God? Isn't it kind of what God made us to be? Shouldn't we be like God? And isn't holiness or sanctity a form of a deification or divinization or God-making sort of process? I mean, isn't that we're supposed to be united with him in, in heaven, as he is known, and to partake somehow in the divine nature. So what's the problem here with Adam and Eve? What's, why are they being blamed for being what they're supposed to be, like gods? Here we must distinguish between the what and the how. Uh, that how we go about something is as important, maybe more, as, more important than what we are going about. 
getting an A in a class is what is the what of academic achievement. It's what we do. But the how makes all the difference between getting an actual education and just getting a stolen prize. Adam and Eve, like us, were called to a life with God, a godlike life. But it was a godlike life on God's terms. Why? Because godlikeness is not a piece of something or a property or a color or a shirt that you can just add, you can just wear, you can just add to something. It is a relationship between you and God, a relationship of knowing and loving. And that involves a conformity of wills. The sin of the garden was not in what so much that they were after, likeness to God, a relation to God, but the how. It's often also the root of our own sins. That's what makes sin so tempting. The what that we seek often can be very good indeed and very fine. But it's the circumstances or the methods or the ways, or more simply, the how, which is the key to holiness. I'm still recovering from the identification of Pope Benedict XVI as, quote, rats. <laughs> so if I, if I laugh, know that I've been overcome by the giggles for good reason. But apropos of this first reading, maybe drawing together some things from what you said, Father Patrick, from what you said, Father Bonaventure, I'm just meditating on the fact that our life, this side of eternity, is fragile. Uh, you think about the fact that the creation is completed in a certain sense at the end of chapter two of the book of Genesis. And here we arrive at chapter three, verse five, and it's already shattered uh, by virtue of our fell choice. So we had the wherewithal to persevere in goodness for like four verses. I'm not going to assign a time to that, but it doesn't seem to have been too long. <laughs> so then the question is, why? Uh, I mean, we would say that the Lord created us in grace, that we had these extra gifts associated with that original bestowal, um, but it proves so very fragile. It proves not to endure beyond, well, beyond the very next chapter. So does that signify that there's something wrong with God's initial gift or something deficient? And I think we can respond no, because it's actually an entry for us, or it's an opportunity for us to enter into the logic of the gift, because the point with you know god's giving of grace is growing us in grace and ultimately confirming us in glory is not that we can set out on our own as kind of spiritual juggernauts like i've been given grace and integral nature and associated gifts of immortality and impassibility and so i can just go my own way as was once sung and i think high school musical too um no the point is that we're supposed to depend more perfectly on god grace is an is a deepening of our dependence it's an entry into our fragility that gives us the wherewithal to look to god for our everything and so i think that that's just a, a kind of inflection point for our spiritual lives it's not that we're trying to set out apart from god and wield the strength with which he has equipped us our very strength comes in the recognition that we have everything from him and we need continually return to him in order to persevere in that So with that, let's turn now to our second reading, a reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. Brothers and sisters, through one man, sin entered the world, and through sin, death. And thus death came to all men, inasmuch as all sinned. For up to the time of the law, sin was in the world, though sin is not accounted when there is no law. But death reigned from Adam to Moses 
even over those who did not sin after the pattern of the trespass of Adam, who is the type of the one who was to come. But the gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, how much more did the grace of God and the gracious gift of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow from the many? And the gift is not like the result of the one who sinned. For after one sin, there was the judgment that brought condemnation. But the gift, after many transgressions, brought acquittal. For if by the transgression of the one, death came to reign through that one, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of justification come to reign in life through the one Jesus Christ? In conclusion, just as through one transgression, condemnation came upon all, so through one righteous act, acquittal and life came to all. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This dense passage from St. Paul's is the locus classicus of the doctrine of original sin, first thematized by St. Augustine in the Confessions from his reflection upon this passage of St. Paul. In Adam, we all sinned and have become guilty in some way. That's the doctrine of original sin is the transmitted condition of this, which we need to repair, we need repair and redemption from even before our actual sins. Original sin is different. This has always appeared a mysterious doctrine to people, even from the beginning when it was first proclaimed. But two points of note. One, the deepest theological doctrines, accounts of God and man, can be nothing except deeply mysterious, not irrational or unreasonable, mysterious. They set the limits to our thinking. It's not our thinking that sets the limits for them. Anyone who believes that God is good and yet knows the world as it is has to say something like this doctrine of original sin. Nothing else can really make sense of the world and our experience of it, even if we can't make perfect sense of this doctrine sometimes. It's deeply mysterious. But two, and more importantly, without the doctrine of original sin, the transmission of Adam's sin to us, even though we didn't commit his sin, if we give up on this or forget this, we miss the flip side, the greater side that Paul talks about here. And Paul brings out especially the transmission of grace and life in Christ to his body, the church. And this is an even greater transmission. For in original sin, we know only the effects of Adam's personal sin. Whereas in grace, given by Christ, we know not only the effects of Christ's personal redemption, we know the person himself. So maybe just, again, departing from that comment, I'm thinking of the line from St. Catherine of Siena who encourages, encourages us or encourages her readers, or maybe it's God the Father who encourages her. Wow, text-critical Gregory over here just mastering the dialogue. Um, we are told never to think of our sins apart from God's mercy. And so, Father Patrick, as you commented, apropos of the first reading, we start our Lenten journey with the end in mind, namely the overcoming of sin. And so we're plunged into the depths of it with the first reading. And then with the second reading, we're given the antidote 
or were given in these awesome words that need be repeated with great frequency, the how much more. So as great as is the transgression, how much more is the grace which is mediated thereby? And I think that, again, that orients our spiritual journey. Insofar as we want to distance ourselves from sin and vice, this is a good thing. But we have to own it insofar as it's the precise point at which we meet our Lord Jesus. So we need to acknowledge the fact that we need saving in order to welcome the Savior into our life. And so it seems like what St. Paul is doing here is emphasizing our solidarity in sin. So a lot of times we'll think about the doctrine of original sin. We will be frustrated at the fact that our lives are so incredibly difficult for something that was chosen for us without our consent many years prior. And yet here we are in the post-apocalyptic nightmare, which is the 21st century. But our Lord comes back and says, no, 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 don't, don't think about it so as to wallow in it. Think about it so as to recognize that insofar as you partake of his humanity, it's that humanity that I've taken to myself so that through it, I can transmit to you with a renewed you know, rigor and vigor, uh, with a renewed generosity and indulgence, all of my graces and virtues, gifts of the Holy Spirit, beatitudes, fruits of the Spirit, etc. So um, on our Lenten journey, while we distance ourselves from sin and vice in the practice thereof, we don't distance ourselves from sin and vice and the recognition that we, we stand in need of redemption. Again, it's not about wandering away from the Lord so as to become a spiritual juggernaut. It's about admitting our weakness and our woundedness precisely so that we can profit from the salvation which our Lord manifests and communicates with such glorious abundance. So as the apocalyptic nightmare of our current state continues to grow, uh, we, we have to change to adapt to that nightmare. One of the things that I used to love doing with uh, Father Bonaventure, Father Gregory, and anyone else that was willing was going to see Marvel films. But you can't do that anymore because <laughs> it's just all really terrible. So uh, that is a point of pain. Uh, you know, and maybe not everyone would agree with us because they're still complacent to, you know, just pay Walt Disney for the indoctrination, which is fine. You know, people make choices. But the, but the thing that I loved about the Marvel film was always that there was a hero. And that's part of my objection to the way the franchises have continued to devolve is that, is that somehow now heroism is, is controversial and to be viewed with suspicion. And Father Bonaventure could probably give us a masterful tour about how philosophy has led us to a point where we, where we treat these ideas with such, such suspicion. But anyway, my, my point is that here in this reading, with the right eyes, we can see something really heroic. We can, we can find the hero that our hearts long for, like the person that we want to meet in a Marvel film that Walt Disney now refuses to give us, which is the Lord, who alone will, will save us from all of our iniquity. Uh, so with that, Father Bonaventure, why don't you lead us to the gospel? A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. At that time, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was hungry. The tempter approached and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become loaves of bread. He said in reply, It is written, One does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and made him stand on the parapet of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and with their hands they will support you, 
lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord God, your God to the test. Then the devil took him up to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their magnificence. And he said to him, All these I shall give to you, if you will prostrate yourself and worship me. At this Jesus said to him, Get away, Satan, it is written, The Lord your God shall you worship, and him alone shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. I want to reflect for just a moment about these lines uh, that begin the Gospel passage. At that time, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. So many of us have reflected in the past 10, 12 years about changes to the liturgy, specifically changes to the translation of the sacred liturgy. And this is going on in different language groups throughout the world as a, you know, you have the third Latin typical edition, and then you have a new document for translation, and then you have the different language groups going about their business. Um, and that touches a lot of parts of the sacred liturgy. One place where I didn't realize it had affected the liturgy was in the Our Father, we may have heard whisperings of that some years back that the Our Father might change. Um, so I live in Switzerland. I live in the French-speaking part of Switzerland, and the Our Father in the context of the liturgy was changed not too long ago. And it was specifically the words of, that, that, that talk about temptation and lead us not into temptation. Because the fear was the way that it was put makes it sound as if God is, you know, I don't know, somehow at the root of it or somehow the cause of it or somehow pushing us forward into such a place where we cannot but fail. And so the language was changed so as to reflect more the fact that God permits temptation to befall as a way by which to lead us more fully into the life of grace. Um, so, I, I mean, these words here are pretty realistic, and they cause us again to reflect that he was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. What's the sense there of the to be tempted by the devil? Here, we've been reflecting in the, the first couple of readings about the nature of original sin and the loss that comes with that. So as ordinarily, we would have been integrated. We would have found it easier to pursue or well, to recognize the good and then to pursue it. Now we have great difficulty doing so. But it's not because something has been added to our nature that's bad. It's not like we're born bad. We're just born um, somehow deprived of or despoiled of what we were always and originally intended to be born with, which is the orientation given us by grace. So now we just look out in the world and we see all of these different good things and we have to choose amongst them and we find it difficult to do so because sometimes lower goods are more attractive to us at first blush uh, and they cause us to upset the order that ought to be there or they cause us to undermine um, higher goods, you know, more, more noble goods in their favor. And so when we're, when we're talking about temptation, we're not talking about something extra. We're not talking about God besetting us by slings and arrows. We're just talking about God leading us into this next situation or this next circumstance of life where we're going to be confronted by different goods. And it's going to pose for us an opportunity to choose among them or to discern what it is that we really love and to prove that by the way in which we comport ourselves. So oftentimes when people go through a time of transition, um, they'll be frustrated because their former habits and virtues seem all destabilized or displaced. But that is just an opportunity, again, to rely more upon the Lord. And I think with this reflection on this gospel, what we see is the Spirit leads our Lord Jesus Christ into life. He leads him into the fullness of human life. And insofar as that, that human life 
is going to be compassed about by all kinds of different things, temptation is in a certain sense avoidable. Now, on account of the fact that Christ is God, that he beholds the Father, that he has the fullness of grace, he's not tempted in the way that we are, but he passes through those temptations so as to equip us with the grace that we need in order to sort out among the different goods of life. So in this Lenten season, as we undertake to pray and to fast and to give alms, we do so with an eye to this, this order or hierarchy of goods which ought to be in place. So we ask ourselves, what's the more, more noble? What's the more dignified? What's the more beautiful? What's the more good? And how can my life be shaped in accord with God's grace so as to reflect just that? And the Lord goes before us in that effort. I, too, have an interpretive question about the Our Father. Because in the Our Father, we pray, give us this day our daily bread. And here in this gospel passage, the Lord says to Satan, one does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. So which is it? Bread or words that we need? And I think one resolution to propose to you is that in the Eucharist, we get the word who is bread that Christ, by giving himself to us in the Holy Eucharist, gives us not only himself, the word of life of the Father, but the bread, the one food that sustains us, that continues to fashion us more perfectly into adopted sons and daughters. The temptation passages, as Father Gregory and Father Patrick have mentioned confusing at first, um, or at least it seems strange that God would be tempted, Jesus would be tempted. It is in the book of the scriptures, which is given to us for teaching about who God is. And this is a revelation, not only to us about Jesus, but seemingly to Satan as well. It is as if he is not exactly sure who this character in this desert is. And so, at least the temptations presented here are sort of ratcheting up of temptations to find out exactly who he's dealing with. In the first one we have here, the Father Patrick talked about with the bread, Satan tries to tempt Jesus in a perfectly natural human way. Will he make food for himself since he's hungry? Will he subordinate his human nature to his will and desires? No, he won't. In the second, he tempts him in a perfectly religious sort of way with the scriptures. He says, will you throw yourself off and trust the scriptures and take advantage of them? The angels save you. Will Jesus bend the word of God to himself rather than respect the words of his father? No, he won't. Finally, Satan tempts Jesus in the perfectly superhuman sort of demonic way. Is he dealing with something above human here? Will he bend, will Jesus bend the world and souls to his power, dominion? No, he won't. Jesus won't be tempted in merely natural or religious or even superhuman ways. The devil and we have learned something about him. Nothing can tempt him to exchange who he is for something else because he is God himself that Satan is having to deal with and we. Nothing can tempt him to this exchange because he has nothing to gain by anything outside of himself. And yet, here he is submitting himself to this farce of, farce of foolishness. Why? Because he wants to gain what he need not, souls, back to himself. Salvation of the world, 
not its control or domination. That is what is tempting to him, you could say. But tempting, of course, isn't the right word. Rather, it's something that he heartfully desires and loves. That's a much better word for it. Let us pray. May bountiful blessing, O Lord, we pray, come down upon your people, that hope may grow in tribulation, virtue be strengthened in temptation, and eternal redemption be assured through Christ our Lord. Amen. Friends, thanks for joining us for this first Lexio episode. Stay tuned to the rest of the Sundays of Lent as we continue to progress through this holy season. Check out these episodes. If you haven't already, like or subscribe to the podcast on social media or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please rate these episodes, you know, give us a little review. We love seeing your comments and it helps other people to find the podcast. If you're able, consider making a donation to us on Patreon to support our ongoing work. But most importantly, remember us in your prayers. Know that we're praying for you. God bless. Mm -hmm.